Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. It seems as though we hear much more about mental health, mental illness, and mental disorders than we have in the past, especially in adults. However, it's estimated that between 10 and 20 percent of children and adolescents have a diagnosable mental health disorder. And there's a good chance that disorder is not being treated, which could have long-term effects. Mental health in children and adolescents is the focus of the first part of today's program. Joining us is Dr. Asan Syed, who specializes in child and adolescent psychiatry with the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, a partnership between Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health. Dr. Syed, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. If you have a question or a comment about uh, mental illness, mental health, mental disorders in children, adolescents, please give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, that 10 to 20% figure, first of all, it's a pretty wide disparity, but that 10 to 20% figure that's estimated to have one or more diagnosable, diagnosable mental disorders that figure may surprise a lot of people. It may, but it's accurate. And uh, it has uh, found to be internationally validated. And it's not just here. Uh, there are more than 70 studies, uh, epidemiological studies, done in countries as far removed from here as Senegal or Nepal. And they have all found to be the same kind of prevalence. Mm-hmm. So that what that says to me is that culture, environment, don't play that much of a difference in these percentages. I mean, we, you're talking worldwide, correct? Right. So go ahead. What were you going to say? They, uh, the culture may influence the time when it manifests or the intensity, the severity, and the outcome, but not actual prevalence. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I also said in that introduction is that there is a good chance that uh, uh, these children, these adolescents, are not being treated. I saw a figure that said 79% uh, are not being treated. That's incredible. And yes. I would imagine that even in the, some of those other countries that may not be quite as advanced uh, as the United States, that that figure even goes up. Yeah, much higher, much higher. Uh, I mean, I don't remember exact figure, but from what I remember, it's probably about 10% of children that get the help in in, in the underdeveloped or uh, non-industrialized societies. It's less than 10% who can actually get to any kind of therapist or primary care physician. Rest just um, are missed, either not not sure about this is being a um, behavior problem, children going through some phase, quote unquote, or is this an actual illness? A lot of parents wait. Maybe it will go away, uh, let him grow up a little bit, or maybe he's just responding to some issues at school. Maybe we could just wait it out. Um, parents, it's difficult for parents to admit that their child may have a, a diagnosable mental illness. It, I noticed you said uh, that the parents will say maybe uh, we'll let him play it out. Uh, is there a difference between uh, boys and girls? Uh, I, I guess I used him as a. I know, generic, I know, and that's what I know, wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, there may be differences in the way uh, some of these syndromes manifest, and certain conditions are more common. Uh, among boys, uh, actually girls are missed more often because they may have 
more of the mood disorder and anxiety and suffer silently versus boys may have more um, hyperactive ADHD kind of uh, syndromes, disruptive disorders, which would bring them to somebody's attention, negative attention most of the time. So it's likely that boys may get uh, attention from the system a little earlier than um, many of the girls. Mm -hmm. I, I want to get back to uh, why, and, and this is one of the big questions I'm sure many people have, is that why there are so many that go undiagnosed. You touched on this. You said about parents not wanting to admit. But why is it that you think that there are so many uh, children and adolescents who aren't being treated? I think uh, awareness is still, I mean, it has improved significantly, even from the time when I was in training till, which is almost 20 years ago. Um, I've seen a big interest in media, particularly, as well as uh, general public, uh, about recognizing and treating and getting the help. Uh, but at the same time, you hear this a lot from parents that, I have a problem, I'm on meds, I don't want the same for my child, I want to give them a chance. There's a lot of misconception about starting treatment too early may put them on a wrong trajectory developmentally. And uh, I've been told by some of the parents, look, I don't want my child to be on any of those meds because then his brain will develop differently and his brain will get used to those meds and will function only when those meds are in the... Uh, milieu of his brain, not uh, not function uh, in a in a natural way. So these are misconceptions. Obviously, yes, addiction is an issue. You you don't want to get addicted to a pharmaceutical product, but most of the times, medications that are prescribed are not really addictive. So that's also um, a problem that stops parents from seeking help. And again, in the end, stigma is a big issue. Uh, it's much severe stigma for a middle school child to be labeled as, um, I don't want to use those names, but those names are used like retard or psycho or, uh, you know, um, cuckoo or whatever. You don't want to be called that or you don't want your children to be called that because sometimes you grew up uh, with the same kind of stigma and you may have that illness that your child may have inherited. And you are reluctant to admit that, yes, he or she also has it. And um, or you you kind of um, look the other way until it just becomes unavoidable. So what kind of uh, what kind of disorders are we talking about in uh, children and uh, adolescents? What are most prevalent? Well, I mean, there are some which exclusively begin in childhood and there are some which may begin in childhood and uh, adolescent or adulthood. So we're looking at things that are child-specific, so we're talking about uh, various developmental delays, um, autism spectrum, ADHD, uh, but overall anxiety disorders of all kinds are the commonest. Uh, social anxiety may be the, the most common syndrome in uh, middle school or high school kids, uh, and substance abuse in an older uh, adolescent is a, is a close second. Well, let's talk about uh -huh. anxiety disorder. How does that manifest itself? How does it present itself? Well, anxiety, as the name suggests, is just a disorder of uh, being wound up or keyed up or nervous. Uh, sometimes it's situational. Sometimes it's uh, across the board, which is generalized. Uh, specifically talking about social anxiety, which is sometimes referred to as social phobia as well. It's, it's 
it's an anxiety about certain situations where you're supposed to perform. Like I'm sitting in front of the mic and I know my voice has to be a certain way and I have to say certain things. That could give me some anxiety. But when it goes out of hand, where you just simply cannot perform those tasks, somebody asks you to go up and make a presentation in front of the class or go introduce yourself uh, to somebody at a social gathering or raise your hands and ask a question. So anxiety for some kids is so paralyzing that they can't even do something which we think is so natural. You have a question, raise your hands. They can't raise their hands. Or somebody points out, well, how about you tell, tell us what's going on or what's the answer to that question and that they just freeze. Uh, the sweat, they tremble, uh, heart rate uh, is faster, uh, breathing, uh, you start to feel like you're short, you have shortness of breath, uh, your muscles become tight. Um, so all these physical manifestations go along with the symptom of nervousness and fear, and fear of something going wrong, um, get embarrassed, or something would happen that would just stay on their you know, on their record forever. Uh, so these are the things that go, go on in their minds. Some of what you describe many years ago, and maybe not that many years ago, would uh, someone say, well, he or she, they're just shy, or they have stage fright, or, you know, some, uh, you know they explained it away some other way. What's the difference between, and I, I think I know your answer, but I just want to clarify, the difference between being shy, uh, being someone who doesn't uh, speak a lot, someone who does have stage fright, doesn't like to go in front of a, in front of a crowd. I mean, I know a lot of people who, uh, actually in my business, who are great behind the microphone, but getting out in front of an audience uh, makes them a little bit nervous. What's the difference? Well, some nervousness, anxiety is uh, it's natural. It's a um, it's a evolutionary uh, phenomenon. It's there. Uh, I guess it had a protective effect to avoid a unpleasant or unknown situation to protect you from something. But so those cavemen didn't want to get up in front of the right other people. people. We got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, when it becomes it comes to the point where you cannot. Uh, even perform your basic functions, uh, since we're talking about children, uh, for a child uh, to function in a classroom, they got to be able to ask questions. They got to be able to at least speak to a group of kids their age. Uh, they should be able to pay at the cafeteria, uh, or pick what they like, uh, or say, no, look, I don't need to uh, have this. Or, uh, or if a teacher asks a question, should be able, if they know the answer. If that becomes a task so uphill that they it freezes them or it just stop, they prevents them from even thinking about going to school, whether should I even go to school today, because of these expectations that they have, uh, performing at a test, performing in um, in a sport event um, in front of other people or even in front of their teammates, that becomes such a huge task for them that they become withdrawn and. Uh, Almost like some of them are called their loners, recluse. Primarily, they're severely anxious, and if their anxiety was better, they may not they may not, may not want to be socially withdrawn. So their functioning, their social functioning, their academic functioning, um, kids as they grow older, when they are in that 
the dating game, when they're asking people out, it becomes almost impossible for them to even go through that. Um, so the, these are the things that, that set uh, somebody with a actual um, disorder versus somebody who just has a social shyness. They're a little timid. They need a little encouragement, and then, then they, they move ahead. And most people fall into that category who are shy, that they need a little encouragement and some opportunity, and then they, they move on, and they don't really um, suffer that much. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's take a, a phone call here from David in Lemoyne. David, you're on the air. Hi. I, I have so much to say on this subject, I don't know where to start. But uh, I've been, I'm 69 years old, been living with anxiety disorder for most of my life, and uh, I, um, I, I've also done a lot of work with uh, special needs children in, in schools and other type facilities. And uh, I, I, I made uh, the first documentary film on the individualized educational program for, for special needs people back in 1976 uh, after I had worked at WITF uh, as a cinematographer. And... Um, uh, at the time, uh, there was something uh, that, 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 that was employed in, in uh, working with children, which they were following, uh, in their, I guess it was in the 70s, um, called the Feingold Diet. And, and Dr. Feingold uh, concluded the, f- from studies that, that, uh, uh, he, that when you eliminate artificial colorings and artificial flavorings and, and artificial preservatives from, from foods, uh, which, which all these things are ubiquitous in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, the foods that the kids eat nowadays. You know, they have fruit roll-ups for lunch. And um, uh, I, I just wonder, and, and they stopped. Uh, maybe it was too difficult to implement or something, but, but it just seems to have been totally forgotten. And I wondered if, if uh, the doctor knew anything about that. And, okay. And all right, David, thank you very much for your call. What about diet? Well, um, at this point, uh, there is no evidence per se uh, with a direct relationship with any kind of uh, psychiatric illnesses. So I, I cannot say with confidence there is or there isn't. But, uh, you know, for from a health perspective, anything which has a lot of unknown ingredients or things which with unknown or unintended consequences, you know, avoiding them is good for health. But specifically for an anxiety disorder or any of the psychiatric problems manifesting in children, we don't have the evidence. Sugar. I saw something last just last week about uh, no evidence that sugar adds to hyperactivity. What it does is actually when you have high sugar in your system, uh, it gives you a lot of energy. So temporarily it may make you feel look like you're hyperactive, but it doesn't cause actual ADHD. It, it may aggravate a uh, subset of symptoms, which is hyperactivity, uh, because it's sugar and it's supposed to make you more energetic and it, it, it's, it's a food for your brain. It goes straight into your central nervous system and uses up and uh, it gets used up and then you, you have the ability to jump and move and kids like to do that and when they have the extra energy, you like to expend it. But the main problem is that we, there is no direct uh, link to that being a cause or a, a risk factor. Maybe not a cause, but uh, someone who has been diagnosed with ADHD, should they avoid high amounts of sugar? It's it's uh, common sense that anything that caffeine, caffeine would do that. 
um, different kinds of drinks like Monster or other kind yeah, of drink things, that yeah. give you a lot of extra boost of uh, sugar and other stimulating substances, you want to avoid those. Uh, whether they cause the illness or syndrome, that's obviously not uh, not yet proven. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about the mental health in children and adolescents with our guest today, Dr. Asan Syed, Syed, who specializes in child adolescent psychiatry with the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, a partnership between Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org, or you can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 729-7532. All right, let's go back to the telephone now. We have uh, on the line, we have Shelly from Gettysburg. Shelly, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, I uh, thought I'd call in and share. Um, I have a 26-year-old um, boy and a 4-year-old boy, and both of which have um, anxiety issues and the oldest one, uh, depression. Um, and I myself have struggled with CPTSD uh, for uh, most of my life. And um, in the last 20-some years, I'm working with my oldest boy. Um, the most pervasive concern that I've heard from parents um, who want to, um, want to get help for their children who have mental uh, or emotional concerns, um, the most concern they have and the, mo- and the biggest wish they have it seems to me, is that they would, uh, I hear a lot of, they would like the system, the therapists, the doctors and, and, and such, to do more of uh, proactively giving the youngsters tools and um, coping skills so that they can manage their, um, kind of manage their thoughts and their feelings and get a control of their own state that they feel empowered rather than um, kind of a rubber stamp and a prescription slip. All right. Thank um, you very much for your call. This is something that I'm sure you wrestle with, mm-hmm. parents wrestle with all the time when a, a child is in treatment is how far do you go with, you know, the, the just t- talking and the therapy before getting into medication? How do you make those decisions? So, yes, it's a very valid question. And unfortunately, um, many of the parents, uh, when they uh, say that they weren't listened to and their kid got a prescription at the end of an appointment, it's it's not far from truth. It, it is, uh, it's, there's a lot of issues, um, uh, the pressure to see a lot of kids and a lot of patients short period of time, uh, insurance, um, and getting somebody functional quickly is, is uh, it's, it, sometimes it's just a society that puts that kind of pressure on everybody. Uh, yes, for especially for children and uh, in, in younger children, the therapy, especially the certain kinds of therapy, such as cognitive behavior therapy, have found to be as effective as medication in many depression and anxiety syndromes, even the more severe ones. Uh, when you definitely use medications, um, obviously she mentioned that she has a 26 and a 4-year-old. So 
when you're talking about a four-year-old, uh, you will be very, very careful starting a four-year-old on any medication uh, unless it's, um, it's, it's, it gets to a point where the child is unable to be managed in any, any way on a day-to-day basis. So therapy, yes, is essential. I think, um, I think a lot of it has to come from um, the understanding that it, it works and it is effective and it saves you cost in the long run because uh, many times we look at things as, okay, therapy takes a long time, several months before the knots d- begin to untie or uh, open up. Uh, medication, the chemicals get adjusted quickly, two, three, four weeks, six weeks. The kid could be functional or a or, or, or person could be functional uh, in a short period of time. And many people also, unfortunately, would like a quick fix. Um, it's easier, um, you know, easier to write a prescription than to kind of delve deeper in their lives and find out. And it, it takes time. So, do you do you have do you have parents who take the opposite of point of view that when they come in they say give him a, a prescription he needs something right right now. I, I think I see that more in ADHD, not so much in anxiety and depression. When you're talking about anxiety de- depression, most parents take a view that okay, let's do other things and try try to uh, uh, have a few sessions. Please make a referral so so you know at a, a skilled therapist. Uh, in ADHD children, uh, since they are hyperactive and they are at threat of being thrown out of the school or being, you know, sometimes schools say, well, get him on a pill, otherwise don't send him. And it's not uncommon uh, because uh, an average class size of 28, 30 kids, one teacher, maybe a teacher's aide in some places which have uh, good funding, otherwise one teacher, and they want to help children who are okay, who are disciplined, who sit in the seat and ready to learn versus one or two children who are disruptive. So a teacher would like those children to be treated or taken away or to some other classroom. So I think a lot of mental health has to be refocused to school. School is the building block of our society, um, public school system. I think that has to have mental health funding. And that's where um, some of this pressure would be taken off when Schools will be skilled and equipped with handling these children in better and a more uh, therapeutic environment within the school. So the need for putting them on medication immediately uh, would be taken away, and they they could function. Many of them could function in a smaller classroom with uh, with a skilled teacher. Um, yes, there are times when when parents ask that, and I I guess I kind of. Uh, uh, explain that the why why it's usually the pressure from school. See, you know there are some people though who will hear what you just said mm-hmm. and say, "Well, is that the school's responsibility? Isn't that the parents' responsibility to uh, say, you know, that there's an issue here?" But I mean, the reality is that because a child is in a, a school setting for six, seven, eight hours a day often teachers, schools are the first to recognize that there, there's an issue, correct? That's true. And also, at home, uh, children are not challenged as much as they are in school. The school, uh, when you come home, the requirement to sit in a chair for an extended period of time and do a boring task for 35, 40 minutes, listen to a grown-up, talk to them without giving them an opportunity to interact, which is 
part of a classroom culture is, uh, I mean, at home it's different. You come home, you eat, you watch TV, you go outside, play. So even if you're a bit ADHD, if you're with your own siblings who are used to your level of activity or you don't have any siblings, you have just grown-ups in the house and they, they tolerate your uh, jumps and things, oh, oh, just you know, getting the extra energy out and he's fine. And if you're not that severe where you cause a lot of destruction or disruption, then parents have a higher tolerance of that behavior. And school is difficult. Uh, you have other kids, you have uh, very structured activities back to back. You have to perform at every every level, social, athletic, and academic. So the challenge is uh, a little too much for them, and then that's where all the symptoms manifest. Let's take a phone call. Speaking of school, Lisa in Harrisburg has something that's school-related. Lisa, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. My my son is in, uh, he's a junior in high school. He has been struggling with OCD and anxiety disorder since third grade, and we've, he's been getting counseling, medication. He's, he's taken good care of making sure his needs are met. And our biggest struggle has been the school. They don't understand. They see it as defiance or laziness. We've been in multiple times, and I think that that's another area where parents really struggle in getting support for their, their child with an anxiety disorder. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. Doctor? So uh, the question was that he is um, being treated for OCD and uh, OCD is yeah is a, is one of the anxiety disorder okay. where you obsess over things punctuality counting hand washing ten showers a day twenty times hand washing things like that right obsessive um, or yeah obsessive right. compulsive right. you have some right. com- compulsions in response to the obsessions of the brain compulsions are the more manifest symptoms and obsessions are thoughts. And most people have both. Uh, but then the later part of the question was that he has become somewhat lazy. Is that what it said? Or She said she thought that the, the, the school had that attitude, that oh, they didn't okay. ne- necessarily recognize the OCD and just thought that uh, you know he was lazy and uh, wasn't and, performing. And that, that can happen. Uh, I, I guess it, when, what, when I was talk, talking in response to another question, that's uh, part of the problem, that uh, a teacher who's not trained in mental health or not skilled in, um, in, in these disorders may see a reluctance to perform a task as just simple manifestation of laziness. So, for example, if a child knows that unless he opens and closes his notebook 10 times, he cannot write. That's his obsession. He has to open and close. Or he has to tap his foot three, four times before he can start a, a, a conversation. He, and no, they know it's embarrassing. People are watching. And OCD, um, they don't have an impaired reality testing. They know what's going on with them. They just can't control it. And they know people think they're crazy. So that's why they don't, they, they just don't do anything and they just sit there until it's over or they somehow get over their obsession or they're able to go through their uh, ritual. So it delays what they're doing. It stops them in the middle of uh, what they're doing. And then the task is not completed and not finished. And then they fall behind. And for the, for a teacher, it's just a manifestation of, you know, you you don't want to do your work. You're inventing excuses. Um you know, that's not See, I guess what I keep going back to is there probably are kids who do that 
how is a teacher to know the and, difference? And that's where, uh, that's where I think training and education comes into play. Uh, that's why I believe that uh, school is a place where we need to invest um, for mental health. Um, I'm not saying every teacher should be a therapist, but mental health, uh, identifying mental health issues should be part of the teacher's curriculum. And I think they should be given the tools. Uh, we cannot rely on a guidance counselor or student counselor, as they call it now, and then they, uh, or referral to an outside therapist. I think the school should be able to handle a lot of these things, at least identifying them and providing them some help in the school. And yes, there are some people who do it, a good thorough history, um, sitting down with them and talk to them. Okay, so tell me what's going on. What's bothering you? Is this is this something you need help with, or is this something that, or maybe this, you know, the person who is lazy who doesn't want to do his work, you would know that they are not suffering. Uh, they probably try want to make excuses for not doing their work, and there are always uh, value to uh, corroborate the claims. Talk to the family. Say. Is this a problem at home as well? Is he having this issue? So I think a good uh, mental health history, um, maybe meeting with the family, maybe observing them uh, in different situations would help. And it's not very, uh, it's not a very expensive process. Uh, you don't need a, a million dollar workup. This is just your two set of eyes and connected to a brain where you're observing and talking and uh, looking at things. And it's, it's. Um, I'm not trying to say that it's very easy, but it, it, if, you, if you have the will to help people and if you have the skills, uh, a lot of people can be helped. I'll take a, one more email here. Um, we had a listener who says, I have a son who has been in mental care hospitals 14 times in two and a half years. He was born with fetal alcohol syndrome and has been on every psych drum out, psych drug out there. The drugs are rough. And he says he doesn't want them. My question is, which I believe, the cause of a lot of mental illness is the diet and the family eroding. Your opinions on those things? Um, well, in this particular case, um, you see that in uh, mothers who continue to drink during their pregnancy. And that's uh, the fetal alcohol syndrome we were talking about. Um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of damage that is caused to the fetus is um, you can't repair it later in life. Uh, it's, 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 it's a brain damage. You, your head is small, your brain is small, so you have to work with what you, you're, you're handed. Um, whether or not they should be loaded up with medication, that's a question about wh what setting they're in, what kind of other help that they have, non-pharmacological. And in some cases, uh, unfortunately, without medications, uh, you would need a, a group of individuals essentially work, you know, 24-7 with them. And it's it's not it's possible. Permanent. It's yeah. permanent damage. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. uh, we're almost out of time, uh, Dr. Sayed, and I want to thank you very much for uh, coming in today. I mentioned to you before the program that this is a topic that our audience is uh, very much interested in, and uh, maybe we can have you back in the future. Um, if you had a message to leave with people out there, I know stigma is a big deal, treatment, getting kids into treatment. What would your message be? Well, first of all, my message in general would be that we, I think fighting stigma is our shared responsibility. It's not just the mental health parents, schools. We all have to fight the stigma so that people who are suffering can come forward. 
Um, for those who have a mental illness or who have suspicion that they may have something, the message would be the help is out there. Um, please get the help before it's too late. Um, there are consequences of mental uh, mental illnesses, the most extreme would be the suicide. And uh, it's a preventable cause of death, but unfortunately, as we know, it's the second leading cause of uh, death among uh, uh, 15 to 35 age group or 15 to 24 age group. It's, a, it's very high, so it can, it's totally preventable with the right kind of help. So please get help and um, also fight stigma at the same time. Mm -hmm. Dr. Asan Sayed is a specialist in children and adolescent psychiatry with the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. It's a partnership between Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health. Dr. Sayed, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania's primary election is tomorrow, and while the presidential campaigns have gotten most of the attention, voters will pick candidates to run this fall in several other important races. We'll talk presidential, U.S. Senate, Attorney General, and maybe even some state Senate candidates with our guest today, Dr. G. Terry Madonna, Director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs, Professor of Public Affairs, and Director of the Franklin and Marshall College poll. Dr. Madonna, welcome to the show. Good morning, Scott. So for you, is the day before the primary kind of like uh, Christmas Eve? <laughs> yeah, well, they've, you know, the attention that Pennsylvania has gotten in the last two weeks, you know, sort of ranks with what we had in 2008 when we had a month of this. Imagine one full month. Actually, it was a little longer than a month where the candidates were crisscrossing the state in the case back then. Of course, it was uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, she won by about 10 points. But this is a primary, you know, almost equaling that in intensity. The, uh, Bill Clinton, by the way, was in Lancaster saw that. where he popped in at the Lancaster Prince Street Cafe. And, and you know, he, had a, he was doing conversation and looking for vegan food. I mean, you know, it was... This is uh, quite a campaign. It, it really is. So let's talk about it. I mean, in the last few days between your poll and some of the other polls that I've seen, it seems pretty much a given, if you go by those polls, that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton will come out victorious in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, she has a—let's talk about Senator Clinton, Secretary Clinton first. She has a double-digit lead, as I keep saying. I don't know why people would expect that she did, wouldn't do well here. She has these Scranton roots that everybody's talked about, you know, her grandfather and dad, born in Scranton. Her uh, father played football for Penn State. Uh, her, you know, she used to go up there in summer at a cottage they own on Lake Winola. Her brothers still own that cottage. She's got these deep connections down in Philadelphia from decades of campaigning. Her daughter, Chelsea, is married to the son of a, former Pennsylvania congresswoman, and here and demographically, she does very well with older voters, right? And Pennsylvania is one of the oldest states in the country. There you got it, fourth oldest state. That's right. She'll do very well in Philadelphia and the suburbs, as I just indicated. Uh, and Sanders will do well among, you know, white working class voters who are a little frustrated that they believe the recession is not over. And same kind of voter in many respects that Donald Trump is doing well with. And, you know, Sanders has, you know, certainly tried to make it a campaign. He's been, you know, he's been through the state. I noticed that a couple of the big venues, Penn State University, 
Gettysburg College, Millersville University. You get the point, right? Right, right. younger voters. <laughs> trying, to gin, trying to gin up vote among uh, younger voters. And it, I just think the demographics and the history here are, 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 are just much too strong. And, you know, there's 189 delegates in play. That's a huge number. Uh, the delegates on the Democratic side run pledged to a candidate, pledged on the ballot, unlike the Republicans. And then she'll get the lion's share of the 21 superdelegates. So, and she's now, according to the latest estimates, 81% of the way towards the majority at the Democratic convention. So I just think it's an excellent, you know, I don't think there's much in the way that's going to stop her from getting a Democratic nomination. Well, before we talk about Trump on the Republican side, uh, is there the potential, or is it just that she can get close, is there potential for Hillary Clinton to actually clinch the nomination with Pennsylvania? Or maybe no, the, not just with Pennsylvania. The other four states tomorrow. States. Yeah, remember now there are five states right. in play. We'll have to see what goes. The other thing that limits the Democrats is what we call the proportional allocation of delegates. For example, back in 2008, when she beat Obama by 10 points, she ended up only winning 10, 11, 12 more delegates than he did because of the proportionality rule. So this thing will inch along for some time uh, until she locks up the majority, probably not until, actually, until June, when she can actually stand up and say, I have the magic number. Okay, let's move to the Republican side. And as you said, it looks like Donald Trump will probably win Pennsylvania. But as you also said, uh, the Republican uh, side is a little bit different in that on the ballot, voters cannot see who yeah. delegates, which delegates are tied to which candidate. That's that could right. be an issue this time. I mean, uh, Donald Trump for the last few weeks has been complaining that the system is rigged <laughs> and that, uh, you know, for those who are counting on a contest at the convention, this is what may present that, that uh, contest. No, you're exactly right. I mean, let's just talk about first, let's take the, what the polls have shown. Every poll has shown Trump with a substantial lead. The real clear politics average is about 19%. We had a bunch of polls at 14, 15, 16. Uh, my poll, the Muhlenberg poll, the Monmouth poll, some have come out higher uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, some have come out lower. Uh, but here's, the, here's the, the deal demographically. Trump sweeps uh, males. He wins seniors, the same as Clinton. Now, we're talking about a closed primary, so we're only talking about Republican voters. High school educations are less. Remember his famous statement, I love the uneducated? Yeah. That's Trump saying it, not Terry Madonna or Scott Lamar. <laughs> I want to make sure people I get that, right? Yeah. Gun owners, 40, he, he leads with gun owners slightly more than 40%. Catholics, Pennsylvania is the home of, on average, more Catholics than the national average. So overall, I just think it's going to be difficult for Trump to win or to lose the state. Now, let's talk about the delegate business. Uh, as been reported over and over and over and over again, Pennsylvania sends 71 delegates to the uh, national convention. Seventeen of them are delegates that will go with the statewide winner likely to be Trump. Now, this is where it gets really difficult to understand. 54 of those delegates, 54, 
run unpledged. 54. They are on the ballot by name. Scott Lamar, your name would just be there, let's say, in the uh, 17th Congressional District. Your name would just be there. Nothing else would be attached to it. And everyone else who wants to be a delegate to the Republican convention. So the voters, when they go in to vote, are going to see names not attached to a presidential candidate. Now, having said that, here's what's fascinating. In the last week or so, we have found out that Trump has about 31 of the total 162 who are on the ballot. Cruz has about 28. These have been identified by the, by the campaigns, and they are putting out slate cards. So when Scott Lamar goes to vote, hypothetically in the Republican primary, when you walk into that voting booth, if you don't get contacted before, you might be handed a slate card that might say, vote for Scott Lamar, or you, you could be running yourself. You could say, vote for Scott Lamar. If elected, I'm to go to the convention, I'll vote for Donald Trump. You follow that? Yeah. So that's where it, some of the complexity might be taken out. But I don't think most voters are going to know the delegates. And here's the rub. Regardless of what they say they will do now, when they get to the convention, they're unbound. Yep. Completely free to do whatever they want. What you just described, you have me doing a lot there, Terry. I'm, I don't know. But, uh, all right, let, In addition to try to do your show that, tomorrow, that's right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> all right, let's move on to some of the other races. Uh, presidential has dominated the news media attention this year. But just in the last few weeks, uh, the Democrats running for the U.S. Senate, there actually are four on the, on the ballot. Right. Three have gotten the most attention. Uh, but it's gotten more attention here in, in the last couple of weeks. So how do you see... Uh, uh, the, the Democrats who are running to try to face uh, incumbent uh, U.S. Senator uh, Pat Toomey this fall. Yeah. Well, as you point out, this has turned out to be a very, very hot contest, particularly for the top two uh, 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 folks who do better in the polls. So you have Joe Sestak, who's consistently led in all the polls up until about the past week. Of course, he's the retired admiral, former national security guy. In the White House, in, in the executive branch, in the federal government, he's also a former congressman from Delaware County. He's been running nonstop for five years. I joke and say I think he's worn out about twenty pairs of sneakers. <laughs> I'm sure walking, walking across <laughs> the state. He he was the putative favorite for the longest time, but here's what's happened over the past several weeks, largely as a result of a huge set of endorsements for Katie McGinty from President Obama, Vice President Biden, Senator uh, uh, Casey, uh, Governor Wolf, and others, scores and scores of unions and Philadelphia party committees, particularly in the city of Philadelphia. She has had an influx, by one estimate, of $4 million, Scott, and you can't turn on a television and not see her ads. So in several polls recently, I'm talking about within you know, that we're in the field within the past week, she, in a couple of them, has emerged as the leader. Not by big, three points, six points in that range. So we expect a real, real nail-biter. Now, uh, John Fetterman has come up a bit. He's, of course, the mayor of Braddock, the guy with the tattoos, six foot eight, blah, blah, blah. And he's done better, but he's only still in middle double, you know, 12, 15, 18 percent. I think we can talk about him in that range. And then the other candidate, Joe Vodvarka, 
you mentioned, he just got put on the ballot last week. And he's, uh, 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 you know, I don't want to dismiss his candidacy, but he wasn't in any of the debates. He's not have, doesn't have any commercials. It's going to be very, very difficult for him to gain any traction at all. So as I see it, it's a two-person race. It, this could end up on election night being very close. If McGinty wins, two things are responsible for it. One, her, her television commercials. Two, the ground game that she will have by virtue of, of the party, particularly in Philadelphia and some of the suburbs, not Delaware County, where Sestak is from, and also by the unions that will be out in full force in the main for Hillary Clinton and, of course, Katie McGinty. Now, you mentioned John Fetterman actually has come on a little bit here at the end, but not enough to really contend. But when you're talking 12 to 15 percent, that takes votes away from one of those other candidates. Uh, Is there one of them in particular that is hurt by a Fetterman candidacy? Yeah, I mean, my my hunch is it would. And again, I've not seen any polls, but just looking at his support base, I would think it, it would probably be Sestak. I don't think there's any doubt that. Sustak and Fetterman, are, I'll be kind about it. They're the anti-establishment candidate. I think you would agree. Going against the grain a bit, Katie McGinty's the establishment candidate. She denies that you know, when she talks about her family background, but you don't get those kinds of endorsements and not be the establishment candidate. And I think probably hurts Sestak a little. The other thing that McGinty has done that will really help her is she has really used a lot of women's issues She's running a kind of Hillary Clinton-esque campaign. She's endorsed him. By the way, go back to Fetterman, or I'm sorry, she's endorsed Hillary Clinton, that is McGinty, and Fetterman has endorsed Bernie Sanders. And Sustak, being the ultimate maverick, has endorsed no one. But probably Fetterman does hurt, uh, I would think he would hurt Sustak, just from where he's gaining his support and the kind of voters we think, based on some, some of the polls, that would that that would indicate that I want to move on to attorney general and the attorney general race, other than some TV commercials here in the last two weeks, has not gotten much attention at all uh, from the media because of presidential, because of U.S. Senate, which is a bit of a surprise considering the amount of, uh, you know, publicity, the amount of talk there has been around the incumbent uh, attorney general who is not running, Kathleen Kane, but uh, three Democrats running, John Morganelli. Josh Shapiro and Steve Zappala on the Republican side, two candidates, Joe Peters and John Rafferty. How do you see this? Yeah, well, this looks like it's settling down to it on the Democratic side to a two-person race between Zappala and Shapiro. They've been going back and forth uh, uh, pretty strongly with some negatives out there about about what Zappala might or might have not done in a case out in Allegheny County. Uh, that Shapiro used against him, and then folks in Philadelphia, you know, uh, the Philadelphia, uh, some of the Philadelphia party and governmental leaders attacking Shapiro for running what they called a false ad. It's gotten a little nasty. This is kind of an odd election to, to analyze. On the one hand, it has an east-west uh, aspect to it. You've got Zapala, uh, more than two decades of DA of, of Allegheny County, he got the endorsement a couple of weeks ago of 11 county commissioners out in the southwest. His father was a justice on the Supreme Court. So you got an established family out there in politics. And then you come into the east where you have Josh Shapiro, a popular Montgomery County 
commissioner, chairman of the board of commissioners down there, was a former state house member. You would think it would be the southeast against the southwest, and it's still likely to be. But many Philadelphia politicians have endorsed Zapala. Johnny Doherty, the head of the electricians union, one of the most powerful unions in this state, uh, he's gotten the endorsement of Bob Brady, the chairman of the Philadelphia City Committee, as well as the endorsement of that committee. I'm talking about Zapali. You see how kind of odd this is? And Shapiro lives within a, within a Gordon Spieth uh, drive from the city of Philly in Abington. You get the point. Mm-hmm. So this has turned out to be a kind of interesting, but yet I don't know how quite to put it. Most voters, because of the interest in the presidential race and the Senate race, I think, this has moved to the back burner. And we hear almost nothing about the state treasurer's right. races yeah. and the auditor general's races. It, I think largely because the president and the Senate races completely pushed those in, in, into the background. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, I didn't even realize that uh, there were three, well, I knew it, but uh, I had to be reminded, put it that way, three right. Democrats running for state treasurer, and yeah. I recognized the Baker Knoll name. This is Albert, uh, the son. Yeah, uh, but okay. getting back to Attorney General real quick on the Republican side, Joe Peters, John Rafferty. Yeah, I mean, Rafferty has the party support. It looks like he's a current state senator. Again, it's, it's with not any polling... I, if I had to, you know, go to one of our casinos, which I, which I don't do, <laughs> I would, I would probably say he's likely to win. Peters is a former U.S. attorney, has a lot more trial experience. Uh, I would think the party would 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 dominate there, largely because Peters does not have a web, uh, a network, uh, uh, throughout the state. But at any, but at any rate, I know you're, we're running out of time here. At, at any rate, I, I think. These are going to set up a really interesting fall election, and we'll have time to talk about that, that could well be dominated by the presidential election in this state. The presidential election might actually determine what happens to these down-ballot, uh, down-ballot elections. All in all, it's, uh, here's something else. We, are, we, are, we think there's going to proportion to their voter registration. There's going to be a bigger turnout among the Republicans the Republicans. Republican registration is up 5.5% over a year ago. And in the polls that we've done, it looks like Republicans, largely driven by the competition and by Trump, will turn out more voters. The Democratic turnout is likely to be lower than we saw in 2008. Their voter registration totals, they're up 2.5% from a year ago, Scott. So interest is there. Hey, Terry, we are out of time. How about we talk uh, Wednesday morning when all the smoke is cleared? Why not? Okay, I'll, I'll <laughs> talk to you then. I okay, know you're going to be busy Scott. over the next couple okay. days. Thanks, man. Dr. G. Terry Madonna, Franklin Marshall College. Uh, tomorrow on Smart Talk, it's a Smart Talk road trip. We're broadcasting live from York Central Markets, so stop in and say hello.